end up in a situation where uh, this is these are the rules that we're working by even um, in business. Um, certainly, I think we're kind of working by them in government. Then there's no refuge left. Then that is the real world. And then we really are in a situation where people can't debate ideas. Welcome to Running Lead Radio. This is Joanna Barron. Today I am speaking to my friend and former colleague, Marnie Supkoff. Marnie is a writer, commentator, and policy analyst. She writes a regular column at the National Post. She also writes for various other Canadian and American publications. Marnie is particularly interested in law, health, and education. And she was formerly the executive director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation, where she hatched the brainchild that became became the Runnymede Society. Uh, We talk in this podcast about the Google Memo and James Damore, epistemological humility, whether the Google Memo incident proves that there is no refuge left for free speech in the university, in the marketplace, or anywhere. And at the end of the talk, we touch briefly on the Law Society of Ontario's new requirement that lawyers provide a statement of principles. Without further ado, enjoy this talk with Marnie Supkoff. Okay, so Marnie Supkoff and I are in a soundproof room at an undisclosed location in Toronto. (laughs) (laughs) And um, we're not really going to talk about this today, but I should just state that Marnie Supkoff is the, in a sense, the raison d'etre and the sort of, you know, intellectual and logistical founder of the Running Mead Society. And I owe her a lot. So thank you. And and I do think that generally what Running Mead is up to does dovetail with some of the things we're going to talk about with James Damore and the Google memo. Um, but welcome, Marnie. Thank you. Those are very kind words and probably an exaggeration, but thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm happy to be here and talk about all those ideas. Yeah. So you wrote two pieces in response to James Damore's Google memo, um, which hit the headlines in August. And the first one, let's just to sort of, we are going over um, a topic that has died down in the media, but we're going to look at it from a more Runnymede radio, broader intellectual perspective. But I do think we should pin down the basics of the controversy um, of your position, sort of strictly speaking, as to the rights of Google to fire, to more um, contrasted with the moral right or the sort of moral stance of, of its response in firing um, Demore. So your basic position was that Google had fully had the legal right to fire somebody for what it viewed as a, its breach of its employee employee code of conduct, but it was a mistake nonetheless. Yeah, absolutely. That was that was my view, and I have to say that in the interim since then, I have had some law professors who I consider quite knowledgeable and probably more knowledgeable than I am, well, certainly more knowledgeable than I am about uh, labor law in the U.S., who have tried to convince me that actually it might not have been legal. And it's possible that's true. However, I guess at heart, maybe what I should have said was that it should be legal. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so you know, putting aside the finer points of labor law in the U.S., um, I th- what the main point is that, yes, I think an employer should absolutely have a right to fire someone if they are saying things that the employer thinks are just not going to work for them mm-hmm. um, in their culture, if it violates whatever their code of conduct is, um, or really if they just think this person isn't going to fit in. It's, it's important in a workplace, and, and that's an employer's right. 
However, I did think, as you said, I did think of his mistake, uh, particularly because these comments were made in the context, not just of espousing an opinion for no reason, but for actually criticizing some practices at Google as a workplace. And I think to have a reaction to that um, that is so close-minded and so quick without even entertaining them or even having any kind of public debate about it um, at all, I think that's just really unwise. And I think it's going to, it leads to a work environment that is full of people who either are all thinking the same thing because they've been told to, or people who aren't thinking the same thing and are not gonna open their mouths because they know if they do, they're gonna get fired, which is not gonna inspire creativity and is just generally not a really good way to uh, encourage people to be their best selves. And do you think that this is sort of what happened at Google is like a mini model or a sort of synecdoche for American society more broadly? It probably in a you know it's in a it's probably it's a bit simplistic but yeah it, it it's it's not unlike what we see going on I think in many ways and it's ironic though I think I think what also would also qualify as as a good model for what's going on in greater greater American society is the fact that part of the reason Google might have reacted this way and overreacted in my opinion is that they're also getting pressure from the federal government about. Um, their treatment of women and whether they are paying women unequally um, and whether their wages are not sufficient. So in some ways they're getting it from both sides. So you have the state that's intervening and saying you absolutely must live up to this this particular standard that we, we've devised and then, then at the same time you're expected to manage that and um, ideally you would let your employees have their say. So it is difficult. Yeah, and and to add on to that is obviously the broader context of criticism generally of Silicon Valley with Uber and its various woes for its documented sort of mistreatment or alleged mistreatment of female employees and just the general sense that Silicon Valley is, you know, laughing all the way to the bank in a, in a discriminatory manner and just deeply hypocritical. Yeah, absolutely. I, that that certainly is out there, and mm -hmm. it doesn't seem unfounded. And I mean, add to that the possibility that your own employees could sue you. Your own female employees mm -hmm. could also sue you. But putting that litigation in, into the the mix, and and just generally wanting to, yeah, your your public image. What do you want to look like, and what do you want the headlines to say? And this is mm -hmm. one of those situations where I think if you just go by headlines, then you, you got to fire the guy because this is a, the the reasons for not firing him take a lot more words than the reasons for firing him. Right. Yeah, and it's almost like well, you know, once once this ugly monstrous zit had emerged on the surface of society, they had to pop it. And I think if you read the Google CEO Sundar Pichai's statement, it just tracks exactly what you just said that uh, it's it's sort of you know talking out of both sides of his mouth, saying we really value free speech and it's not cool if employees don't feel free to speak freely, but this guy crossed the line. And clearly, if they truly valued free speech, they would not be firing him. Right, <laughs> but, well, yeah. But, you know, just the sort of the awkwardness of the position is manifest on the face of it. Well, yeah, and you can totally imagine what it was like for them. I mean, I'm sure, I can imagine the stress and the, everyone freaking out. And you've also got female employees who are commenting publicly and saying, yeah. I can't believe this guy said this. And yeah, I don't envy them. I don't envy management being in that position at all. I'd like to think I would have made the choice that I think is the better one, both both business-wise and morally, which, which I think would be not to fire him. But I don't know. That's a lot of pressure. Yeah.
So we're going to get into some broader topics in a moment, but just quickly, because I admit, I, as I think many people did, I only got around to actually reading the Google memo this afternoon in preparation for this conversation. And a few things struck me. So as I said to you right before we became, we can, recording, he did strike me as very tone deaf and it did irk me in a sort of mansplaining way. Um, but there were a few observations that I thought were interesting and that had not been reported on at all. So one comment is that many differences between men and women are small and there's significant overlap between men and women. So you can't say anything about an individual given those population level distributions. Um, so essentially what he's saying is you can't draw any inference about the aptitudes or character traits or social, social socialization style of anybody just by fact of observing their gender. So it seems like he sort of contradicts this own, his own very sage observation later in his own memo with his sort of policy critiques. It's a, that's a really good point. I mean, and, and I think it's been completely missed. At least I haven't seen anyone mm -hmm. address it. And really, he makes, I mean, that's the point that has been made by people like Charles Murray, who, again, mm -hmm. he has this really subtle point about differences in IQ and cognitive ability and whether there are differences between races. And um, the problem there, of course, is just even going near the topic. It's, it's, it's radioactive. But if you listen to him, I mean, he makes a, a very similar disclaimer, which is to say that statistically, this doesn't tell you anything about, you can't look at a person and say by virtue of, in, his, in Murray's case, race, or in this case, gender, you, you can't make any conclusions. Um, whether that, it's interesting, I hadn't thought of it though, whether that, that completely undercuts all the arguments later, or whether one can say, okay, I, statistically, I can't take a look at any one individual and make these generalizations, but perhaps there still is some relevance in kind of thinking about this. Yeah, people as groups. As groups in terms of engineering policies that are going to try and achieve the goal that we have, which he doesn't seem to dispute. I mean, the goal that Google seems to have is, is basically equality in the ranks of people uh, women and men in their employ and, and in certain jobs and probably in management. That's what most companies are talking about as well now. Um, and if you're going to do that, then it seems to me not being a statistical genius, but I think that you know, even given that caveat, I think then in that context it might make sense to look at the broad, um, broad, the broad differences, even if they're not big enough to register on individual scale? Well, that might be the big question. I'm glad you brought up Charles Murray and the sort of radioactive podcast um, called Forbidden Knowledge by Sam Harris that we both listened to and talked about a bit over the summer. Um, because yes, it's clear on the one hand that if you understand how statistics work, that it's irrational and just makes no sense to draw inferences about an individual based on statistical averages of populations. Then that leads to the question, so why talk about it? What's your end game? And that is the big criticism of Charles Murray, which I think is to some extent legitimate. Okay, if you know that people are going to jump to these erroneous conclusions and they're not as sort of fine-minded as you in terms of understanding the implications of statistical analysis, why are you doing this? So similarly with things like this, I mean, to be honest, a lot of these things in this Google memo that I read was like, well, of course, we know that men are 93% of the people that are in workplace-related uh, injuries. Yes, we know that overwhelmingly people in dangerous, physically dangerous professions are men. We know this already, so why are you doubling down on it? It's not, like, qui bono, basically. 
Well, it's a good question, and I remember after we both listened to the Sam Harris podcast, I remember you, we were having an exchange, possibly texting about it, and I remember mm -hmm. at some point you were saying, yeah, but why, then why, why? Mm -hmm. And my, um, and it's a, it's a valid question, because you're right, I mean, it, look, look how much controversy this has caused, I mean, this is, in some ways, I don't know if it's an exaggeration to say it ruined Charles Murray's life, but it certainly, He's not leading the career I think he would have um, had he not written the bell curve and defended it. Um, and in, in the other Google case, we've got a guy who's been fired. Um, so clearly, the, it's, you know you're going to stir up a lot of trouble, or at least you certainly know now. The, the, you, maybe Charles Murray didn't know. And by the um, way, now James Damore, as far as I can tell, his livelihood is running a Twitter account called Fired for the Number Truth. <laughs> <laughs> So, so I don't know. Yeah. Maybe maybe that's that was his dream. Yeah, one one doesn't know, and it, 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 I, I think it's fair to say that he could and should have anticipated controversy. However, the reason why I still think that when when Charles Murray explains, at least from what I understand, part of what I think he says when he's asked why, because I believe Sam Harris asked him why, is that he thinks it's important in terms that it, it, these are important things to know if we are actually going to be creating policies that are going to affect people. Um, and I think in his case, he's pointing to affirmative action in higher education. And we're, we've learned, um, you know, certainly not only Charles Murray, but people like Malcolm Gladwell. And, and the, the, there are many people have, have sort of referred to the fact that as it turns out, um, it can be an extremely discouraging and um, not helpful thing to be accepted at a university that is sort of above your general, what would normally be your level, um, based on another characteristic, because then you might end up sort of being, um, your performance might not be as uh, excellent, you might be as not at the top of the class as you would have been for the rest of your academic career, and this can create confidence problems. Um, so I'm, anyway, that's a, that's a gross oversimplification of well, the Well, there issue. is that, and the other point he brings up is that you don't want to get a, a system where people automatically draw the inference that if you're there, it must be because of some, you know, you, yeah. got, you got a leg up because right. of some affirmative action policy. That was another point Murray made, which I, I thought was, you know, a, a real danger with all this. No, I think it's, yeah, I think that is a fair point as well. And, and, um, and if that's the reality, it's hard. No, no one wants to think that or think that about themselves. But if you know for sure that there are certain um, quotas or, or targets or whatever you want to call them in a more positive way, it's, you're not actually, you're not being racist or sexist, you're actually just reflecting reality. So yeah, I think, I think that that's, that, at least that's the best answer I can come up with for the why. And in the Google case, I think that again, we don't know what he wanted, maybe he wanted attention. But if, if his goal were really to try and actually improve Google's diversity initiatives, if he really did think that they're going about it the wrong way, which it sounds like they might be. It sounds like they're sort of having a lot of meetings and saying we want you know, diversity. We don't have as much diversity as we could and should because of discrimination and that's it and there are no other factors. If they really are saying that and really are thinking that way, they probably are shooting themselves in the foot in terms of progress. Um, is his presentation great? No, <laughs> probably not, as you point out. Um, but look, that's not his job. I think I think he what he was trying to I think he accomplished what he was trying to do, if you read the memo. 
Um, yes. Oh, and I was going to say ask. another thing that struck me that also nobody had mentioned was that he he criticizes it both ways. He says there are other sort of diversity programs Google offers that are not extended to men, like a program called Stretch, which I assume is to teach women how to negotiate up their salaries, which women are notoriously bad at. He says, but you know, men should be included in those programs as well. And and I agree, you can't have it both ways. You can't say it's sexist to associate a certain set of traits like um, lack of assertiveness to women and then criticize men who say, well, why aren't you doing anything to, to, to help us? You know, men's rights, the reviled men's rights movement. But if you are going to decouple certain traits from identity groups, then you have to be open to at least hearing those types of requests. Yeah. Excuse me, that's a really good point. And I think it also shows that there is hypocrisy in Google's position because a lot of what they said and what many people who supported them said is they just implied that that the differences that are that are talked about in the memo, this idea that there there could be differences between men and women in how they either um, operate or how assertive they are, as you say that this is just this horrible notion and how could you even go there? Um, that is a bit hypocritical when you have a program that's basically designed, as you say, to, to really in a way to teach confidence and assertiveness. Mm -hmm. And and also I, I agree with your assessment that if you're going to offer this, there's really no good justification for saying we're only going to offer it to one sex. Even if you believe that it's going to be more helpful to one sex, as he says, you can't take this on an individual level. It doesn't mean that every man is going to be good at salary negotiation mm -hmm. and every woman terrible. And so there are going to be some men who would benefit. So why why continue this um, sort of keeping, I mean, why, why people are mad that this memo focuses on differences between the sexes and sort of makes a big deal about them, but why do that in terms of initiatives as well? Why not? try and do what I think most people would consider virtuous, which is um, look at people as individuals. And that would include um, helping people in the areas that they're weaker, regardless of what those areas are and regardless of what their sex is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can already see, you can see the identity politics critique to that already, right? Which is really something yeah. that we've gone over in many contexts when we try and talk about individuals, what the response is. Well, you can't diver, di divorce an individual from his social context and his identity and the history um, and things the power. like that. Yeah, yeah. And it's, uh, yeah. It's, it's a big problem. Well, it is a problem because it shuts down the discussion. Yeah. Uh, you're right, because you and I can keep talking about this, but had you know, if that were the point that were brought up and it were brought up after the first two minutes of our discussion, that's kind of the end of the discussion because yeah. there's no comeback to that except to say, well, I don't think that's true. Well, or luckily, we're both Jewish women, so, <laughs> so we're on we the same footing. We can say a certain amount, yeah. <laughs> we have this very limited sphere of authority to talk about our experience. That's right, yeah. Yeah, so I want to talk quickly about the second piece that you wrote in the National Post, sort of after the, the battle lines have been drawn in this controversy. You wrote a really thoughtful and I thought pretty beautiful piece on epistemological humility. And you said sort of, look, this has really erupted into a war between right and left and, you know, gender traditionalists versus gender progressives. And it has just, we've gotten into a detente, but why don't we look at this in terms of epistemological humility? Can you say a bit more about what that fancy phrase means? <laughs> it's really hard to say <laughs> yeah. and spell, I have to say. I, 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 some people say, ep, 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 oh, I can't even pronounce Epistemi it. Epistemic. Well, yeah. 
epistemic humility, which I find slightly easier to spell, though, if not mm. pronounce. Um, right, so that idea was not my own, um, and it was, and I'm sure many people have, the, the concept is by far not my own, but even linking it to this incident was uh, Nick Gillespie on Reason.com had an article that was talking about this incident and talking about um, epistemological humility. But it really hit home for me because suddenly I found the whole Google memo thing. I wrote about it and I tried to sort out my thoughts. But I had this nagging feeling that this isn't actually what the real problem is. Um, and I got asked questions. I did some radio on it and people were, would ask me questions about, well, is it, you know, is this sexist? What should workplaces be like? Is this a conservative issue? And I kind of realized that I don't care and it doesn't matter. Um, because I think what the part that bothered me the most was that I think the decision to fire the employee based on these comments to me was evidence that what Google was doing was saying, we are absolutely positive that when it comes to diversity and how to handle it, we already know we're right. So we don't want to hear from anyone who has any questions about it, um, anyone who wants to suggest that we might be barking up the wrong tree. Um, that's, that's it. And I think that's what happens in a lot of situations that we hear about these days that where speech is shut down. It's shut down because of a moral and intellectual certainty, um, which I think is unhealthy and scary and not helpful in terms of all of us progressing. Uh, it might sound a little cheesy, but I actually think that to progress as a person, to grow as a person, to learn and grow, um, I think there are things that you have to learn for yourself. And you can't do that if someone has already told you that this is how things are, there's no question, and um, we're not even going to think about why or how that might be so. Yeah, and how do you sort of conceptualize the differences? It seems like there's a clear line between something like Middlebury and Evergreen to what happened at Google. Um, and I just, I wonder, on the one hand, it's not a ped pedagogical institute. They do have full, I think I agree with you, you know, legal right to fire an employee. An employee is generally fireable. Um, on the other hand, um, these are adults engaged in business, and we don't expect them to be as quick with the demands for safety and to, you know, draw, draw parallels between actual violence and sort of verbal violence in cases like this. And we do expect a sort of more bracing marketplace of ideas. Yeah, I think Somewhere like Google, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, in some ways, I think it's more, I don't know whether it's more discouraging or less discouraging. In some ways, you, it's sort of more understandable because if anywhere is going to, to sort of understand the idea of not being arrogant about how much you know, it should be the academy and it should be mm -hmm. universities. So on that, in that sense, you think, okay, maybe companies like Google aren't, don't get it in that, that way. But on the other hand, yes, in terms of not treating people like delicate flowers and allowing them to sort of bear the, whatever the pain or, or hurt of actually listening to different ideas of, you would think that that's where a private company like Google would outperform the universities. And the fact that they didn't, I think is disappointing. And in some ways, um, I think it's, a bad omen because when this is limited to universities, it's very damaging because it interferes with people's education and that's gonna interfere with the way these people look at the world. 
um, an entire generation. So that's pretty bad. But on the other hand, the damage is quite limited because in some ways universities are not the real world. Um, they're, they're quite divorced from the real world. And usually you have the comfort of sort of thinking, all right, once these people get out into the real world, they're going to learn that that's not actually how things work. And um, you know, the drive for profit, wh whatever you may think of it, is going to sort of drive some sense into people. If we enter, a, if we, we kind of end up in a situation where uh, this is, these are the rules that we're working by even um, in business, um, certainly I think we're kind of working by them in government, then there's no refuge left. Then that is the real world. And then we really are in a situation where people can't debate ideas. And that is really frightening. Um, and certainly, and in some ways, if you can't debate ideas in the workplace, you're you're, how can I say it? You're, it's, it's a danger in terms of your ability to earn a living, which is necessary to live. So, I mean, one can kind of say it's terrible that you can't, you can't debate ideas on campus, and it is. But it's even worse if you have to sort of shut up and not say what you think for your entire adult life in order to survive, um, and it, which in this case would mean sort of holding a job. Yeah. So, I mean, on the one hand, it does seem like the canary in the coal mine. And this has just like been a very prominent public example of like shut your trap or, you know, hashtag fired for truth, which doesn't <laughs> seem like a very good way to make a living. I don't know. I Who mean, knows? he could be I, yeah. taking the Jordan Peterson <laughs> Express to fame and fortune, etc. On the other hand, I do think there probably is Google is its own bubble, right? Like I don't think that the same sort of norms, which obviously are so strongly held up, you know, and vigorously, violently defended at Google, I don't think the same ones are in play at, you know, a, an automotive business or, or anything like that. But, you know, Google is clearly a thought leader. Yeah, I mean, Google is a thought leader. We sort of rely on companies like Google to be incredibly creative and innovative. And, and to literally filter our reality to us. It's true, which <laughs> is scary, but, <laughs> but true. And I also think there's also the danger that the more it is accepted in the corporate world, the less there's going to be any pushback when we get more and more um, mandates from the government to make this um, mandatory. Um, basically, so you know, right now, if the government, um, when, we, when you look at things like our human rights codes, or you look at things, there's things like that. And in terms of what the responsibilities are for employers, um, you know, some people push back, some people don't. But there are people on the right who are saying it's 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 already too, gone too far. But can you imagine how much further things might go? Uh, in terms of sort of taking away an employer's right to look at each individual individually rather than worrying about yeah. what class they fall into, um, if they know that employers are going to be doing it on their own. They're sort of already uh, conceding and surrendering first, which is never a good thing because then it paves the way, makes it so much easier for the government, which has the power of actually forcing you to do right. it to come in. And people are already there, so that so no one's going to say a word. And and you know, look at what the law society is doing now with these you know compelled diversity statements. Which I heard a debate with our friend Bruce Party and Renata Austin on CBC Radio this weekend, and basically Renata Austin, who's very thoughtful, bright young woman, her point was basically, of course you have to be committed to diversity. Like, how could you even question it? You are a lawyer in Ontario. Like, you know, fill out the report and shut up. Like, this is this is the order of the day. Um, but I do agree with Bruce that, that creating this positive obligation to report on your own activities seems pretty authoritarian. <laughs> well, it really does. And I, I mean, I think it always comes, it, what it comes down to is are we, 
you know, it's one thing to say there are certain things you can't say, and I find that disturbing. But it's another thing to say there are certain things you can't think. And we're coming closer and closer to saying there are certain things you can't think. And that, I don't think there should be room for anybody. I don't think the government belongs in anyone's head, and I don't think the law society belongs in anyone's head. I don't think, I think it's a really unhealthy situation if you have any institutional, um, any institution that is, is actually monitoring kind of your, your internal ethics almost, um, rather than what you do through your actions. Um, I mean, it's almost, I mean, there's something, there's something particularly um, disturbing about compelled speech that is worse than censorship because it's really put, you know, putting words in someone's mouth is basically you're, you're, you're sort of forcing them to adopt an idea, um, either that or to pretend that they've adopted that idea. And, and neither one is, is a very um, appetizing well, thing. Well, and, and look at how this, the conversation surrounding, surrounding the controversy, for example, in the Law Society, but also with the Google memo, the conversation surrounding it is even more disturbing to me than the actual act itself of filling out the report. Uh, the conversation is, you either agree with this, and if you don't, you are a backwards, bad, wrong-thinking person. So there is no room, again, for what you say, for epistemic humility. And there's just the immediate stamping of verboten. Yeah. And that's clearly what happened. And, uh, and, and yeah, and I, so I was trying to imagine an alternate you know, a counterfactual with James Damore, where instead of getting fired, there was some type of constructive dialogue in which James, in which Damore himself said, yes, I was, you know, I could have been more sensitive. I understand this is, I could have put this better and I apologize if I created this impression. And Google sort of should have, could have said, you know, you did make some points and maybe we should look at this and maybe we should, you know, make it explicit that men are invited to the salary negotiation. You know, wouldn't that have been so nice? And everybody yeah. would have, would have, you know, come out, would have benefited from that. But that just never seems to happen anymore. No, I think you're, you know, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I really think that there were, it was not like it was a black and white choice where they had to be like, go, we support this memo or you're fired. There were so many things they could have done and you've, you've just suggested many good ones. And I, I thought it was especially, I, I probably wrote this in the article, but I, that, that to me again sort of seemed very hypocritical because the implication was, and in, in fact it was almost stated this way, oh my God, our female employees could never work with him, they can't take it, they're mm -hmm. gonna feel unsafe, they're gonna be, uh, it's like, okay, wait, I thought we were saying that females are not these super delicate flowers right. who we must treat diff differently. Um, let's treat them respectfully as competent individuals, which would imply that you could have a debate. Um, and you know, females could, Talk to talk about this issue. Uh, if they disagree, then you know, get them up there and have an internal debate. I don't know. There are way more, many, many things that could have been done that weren't. And I think you're right. I think part of what is scary is that um, there's a lack of compassion and tolerance. And I don't mean tolerance, obviously, in the kind of political sense of we must tolerate. I mean tolerance of period of human of human beings and their foibles and. I think that the reaction, the general reaction now is yes, if someone says something that um, is deemed to be wrong, then it's not just, they're not just informed. It's not like someone says, well, you know, I think that's not right, or you might want to think about this. It's, you are a racist, or you are a whatever, <laughs> and you, and it's an implication, and there's sort of the feeling that everyone has then 
a complete kind of moral right to just go after this person and just basic kind of rules of civility and humanity and compassion and tolerance should tell us that this is not the way we need to treat someone. I, you know, when you look at, um, there, there was, I mean, even if you sort of look back at the civil rights movement and you look at, a, you know, a figure like Martin Luther King and who was, you know, these stories about how, you know, at some point there was a, a racist guy who came up on stage and tried to um, attack him and Martin, Martin Luther King hugs the guy and, mm -hmm. and sort of just embraces him in compassion and the guy ends up with tears in his eyes and um, it's very dramatic. But in, in some ways, you know, that is what you hope the ideal would be, which is to say you don't have to agree with someone. Someone could be completely wrong and they could be racist and they could be, I, mean, I think this guy in that story I think was living in a KKK dormitory or mm -hmm. something. Um, but the reaction to that doesn't have to be automatically just this vicious sort of tearing apart of the person. It can be a moderate one, it can be a tolerant one in the sense that you can point out someone's error without um, completely demonizing them, as you say. Okay, well, it's been great. Thank <laughs> okay. you so much, Marnie. My pleasure. Thanks for